Now, a few weeks ago, there, was, uh, there were high winds and there were um, storms and there was a power outage and a family that lived in Fenton, a family of six, young family, uh, their youngest was just a one-year-old baby. They, they had their power knocked out. They were, they were fairly prosperous people. They had a generator. They started a generator and the generator wasn't well ventilated in the entire family. All six of those, that precious family, all of them died. And uh, they, this was a family who, they were a part of a, a Baptist fellowship, actually, in Fenton. They were believers. They knew the Lord. Um, but all of them perished. All of them perished. When I thought about this story, I thought, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been something if you could have been there to just knock on the door and warn them and say, get out? Well, you know, there's something actually worse than dying, and that is living without Christ and perishing and going to hell. And, and, and this time of the year, because of the way our culture works, it's a time when if people are going to come to church, this is the time they're going to come to church. And so what we want to do now, it's this week, is a critical week for us that believe in evangelism and the harvest is go invite people. It's literally like knocking on their door and warning them that they could perish Without Christ, we did this yesterday. 850 invitations were given out yesterday um, by people in our church, and I thought it was pretty cool. You know, I thought 850, you know, and that's a lot. And, um, and I've been giving them out everywhere I go. The girls at McDonald's are sick and tired of me giving invitations. Like, uh, and uh, but um, I give them out everywhere I go. And um, uh, yesterday, I was in a neighborhood that the Lord put on my heart a while ago, and it's just like this particular neighborhood, the Lord just, I believe he put it on my heart. And so I'm personally going to kind of adopt, I've gone to that neighborhood before, I'm going to that neighborhood some more. I'm going to stay in that neighborhood myself, just personally, um, going to those people and saying, um, hey, I'm the senior pastor of that church down there on the corner, and I want to invite you and your family to be a part of all that's going on there. It'll be so good for you. So I'm in the neighborhood again yesterday uh, and, uh, with, with Hope, and uh, Rebecca was with us, and, and we were just going through that neighborhood and talking with people and, you know, trying to wake up, most of them were sleeping. It was like, it was 11 o'clock. People sleep late. I can't believe that. It's like, they're sleeping late. But they're really nice. Um, one guy comes to the door and he goes, yeah, yeah, man, that's, um, that's the church where we go to Upward Football. And our, na- our neighbors right over there, they're the ones that invited us. So I go and I wake them up too. And I'm like, thank you for inviting them. And, and if you don't have Easter plans, come and be with us. So what a difference it can make in people's lives. It can make a life and death difference. And so, you know, don't feel pressure. Uh, don't feel guilt. That's not the purpose of us talking about this invitation thing. It's just, let, I'll just say this. If you want to get involved in something that could have eternal significance forever and forever, pray for people, love them, invite them, and see what God does. And it's going to be really great next week because it's Easter for pity's sake and, and it's free breakfast. And we're not like a little puny. This is not a Methodist breakfast we're doing. This is a Baptist breakfast that we're doing. Apologies to our Methodist brothers who might have stumbled in here. Um, just kidding. It's pancake breakfast. It's a full breakfast for the whole family. And it costs nothing to you. This is free. And it's, it's not for you so much, right? It's for you to take advantage of an opportunity to invite. And I uh, will be telling the great story of Jesus and his death, his resurrection, his second coming. We're going to be telling that Sunday. It'll be neat. We'll take a break from Revelation. We'll just go right at that Easter uh, Sunday. So so, this is a a great opportunity. Perhaps on Friday, 1 to 2 o'clock, we have a beautiful 
uh, service here on Good Friday, and I know it's very meaningful. It'll be a very meaningful service of choir singing, and um, it's 1 to, 1 to 2 o'clock. And then on the Lord's Day, it's Easter, and so it ought to be. This gives you something to do uh, that's simple that could have a, an eternal significance. Now, we're in this idea of revelation, and if you've been kind of going along with us, this is one of the most fascinating books of the Bible because it tells about the end, and it tells a lot of other stuff too. And in, in this section that we're in, there, it, judge, in the book of Revelation, there are judgments that are poured out. And John, the apostle, is allowed by Jesus to see these in prophetic foresight, in a vision. And he writes them down, and he gives them to the churches. And the things that John saw and that were written down have been passed down through the centuries. They're literally, like, if you have a Bible with you today, they're in your lap in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And it's laid out in a really interesting kind of intricate, almost mathematical arrangement that it has series of seven judgments that John sees. When he sees into heaven, God allows him to see into heaven, he sees that the scroll is unrolled and it's sealed seven times. And when each seal is broken, something happens on the earth. And the, the something that happens on the earth is happening in a period of time that we call the tribulation. We believe it's a seven-year period of time that the Bible's very literally clear about. And it's about to happen. It's about to start. We don't know when it will start. It could be tomorrow. It could be before I'm done talking. It could be way off into the future some. But we know it's kind of the next thing, if you will, on God's like prophetic time clock. It's the next thing that's going to happen, the rapture of the church. And then the seven-year period begins, and it's called the tribulation. And it's kind of amazing, but the Bible talks about it in chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation. Now, if it was just me picking... I would pick maybe, I would tend to pick kind of more little happy series like five ways to have a happier marriage. Or maybe I would preach a series on three ways to be a blessing to your husband. Yeah, I like that one. Or maybe I would do a series about how to honor your father. That would be a good series. Wouldn't that be good? Or, or, or maybe I would do a series on, you know, how to make money and save it. That'd be good. But you know what? I didn't write the Bible. And that's really good. God wrote the Bible, and we don't make up our own stuff around here. What we do is we look at the Bible, and we notice that God really wants us to know about this tribulation thing. He wants us to know about the second coming. He wants us to know about who the judge of the earth is. And and, and we studied this today. It was a fascinating thing to see that our message is, now I'm going the wrong direction again. Okay, you you help me, and you take over there. Because we've got the wrong, yeah. So put our, yeah. What, what we're going to see is that the Bible teaches that the God who created the universe, the God of the Bible, is the ultimate judge of the universe. And what we have in the scriptures is we have a, a, like a, a graphic description of that. And in, in it's repeated over and over again in different ways so that we'll, hey, so it will grab us by the throat. In other words, we, we're not just trying to make our way through life and have happy marriages and, have, and be good parents and take good care of our car and be a good pet owner. I mean, these are all parts of our life. You know, how many of you got your bracket messed up totally this week, if you know what I'm talking about, right? We're not just here to end with a good bracket. And you're like, what's he talking about? If you know what I'm talking about, just forget I made that reference, right? It's not just about if our team wins. It's not just about if um, things go well for us. It's not just about is the economy good. There, is an, there, is an, there are ultimate things in the universe, and we read about these things in the Bible. And so we have this sweep of revelation where God is warning us about 
what it's going to look like when we come to the end. And so it would be really smart for smart, wise, thoughtful people to organize their life around what we know is going to be true in the end. And you see that real clearly. So in Revelation chapter 12, in between these judgments, you have the seven seal judgments that are out. Then you're going to have the seven trumpet judgments, judgments that come on the earth when trumpets are blown in heaven. And then later on we're going to see the seven judgments, bowl judgments, judgments that are come on the earth when bowls are poured out. But in the middle here, we have this parenthesis, if you will, and this description of kind of what the cosmic warfare looks like, what's going on in the heavens now, and especially during the tribulation. And in chapter 12, we were introduced to a dragon, and it didn't take us much to figure out that dragon is the devil. So God wants us to know that there's a real devil, and he didn't just get He didn't just do all his work in the past. He's working now, and he's going to work in the future. And then in chapter 13, it introduces the two more characters. Remember that last week. And that is the beast, or what we call the Antichrist, or the beast, or the lawless one, and the the other beast there, which is called the false prophet. So you have this, like, satanic trinity. Now, that's all depressing, right? The devil, the beast, and the false prophet. You're like, Pastor, you're giving me indigestion this morning. that's That's troubling, Okay, well, we didn't come here to depress you today, but every message that's truth from God's word should be a powerful encouragement to you. And so now we've gotten to chapter 14, and in chapter 14, we have God's response. He says, like, you you might be thinking, if the devil and the Antichrist and the false prophet are organizing a system that the Bible calls Babylon in the end time, and that's all against God, and it's all against God's people to discourage God's people, to destroy God's people, to defile God's people. If all that's happening, who in the world could ever make it through that? How in the world could we ever survive such a thing? And then you get to Revelation 14, and in Revelation 14, you see that you have a picture of the lamb who is the key figure. This is the lamb that was slain. Tell me who this is. That's Jesus, and he's standing on Mount Zion. I believe what we have is a fast forward into the millennial period where he's saying this is what it's going to end up looking like, the lamb on Mount Zion, which is a reference to Jerusalem, and he has with him 144,000. These are the young Jewish evangelists that were introduced there in chapter 7. Now we see them again, and there are still 144,000 of them. It's like all of them were pure, persevering, and preserved through the tribulation, all the way through the tribulation, used of God for a great soul harvest. You imagine 144,000 Billy Grahams or something, and all over the earth during the tribulation, People are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Some are resisting him. Many are coming to Christ. Many of these are Jewish people. The Bible says that there will be a return to Christ, the Messiah, among the Jewish people. So let's look at Revelation 14. I'll read all of it, and then we'll go through it in the sections that are really clear. What you're going to see here is that in verses 1 through 5, you have the Lamb on Mount Zion with 144,000, and it gives about six characteristics of that 144,000 which are really encouraging for us. Then you're going to see in verses 6 through 13, there are three angels, and these three angels are giving warnings. These are ominous warnings, kind of like this is your last chance warnings. And in that section, you'll see from verse 6 to 13, three angels that are giving warnings, and they give specific warnings that are really relevant, like to you and I, you know, even today. And then at the end of that section, it's going to contrast those who worship the beast and those who worship the lamb And then the last section, you have three more angels. 
And those three angels in the last section, what they're going to do is they're not going to warn about God's judgment anymore. They're going to announce and they're going to execute God's judgment. And if you read to the end of this, you see it ends in a very frightening way. So, so that gives you a little bit of a framework for what we're kind of looking for. We have the lamb on Mount Zion and the 144,000 and a kind of a fast forward and look what it looks like in the millennial period, which is after the tribulation, what it kind of looks like. But then you have a, a graphic description of how God is going to warn everybody before judgment comes by actually, and he's been warning, you know, for centuries and having gospel preachers and missionaries for centuries. You, you yourself have frequently been taught, you know, the gospel and warned about the gospel. But at the very last before that judgment comes, there these three warning angels are going to come in ominous warning, pleading with people, this is your last chance, repent. And then you have the last three angels that are going to announce and execute this judgment. And the little piece that I left out is the critical piece in between the three angels that are warning and the three angels that are executing judgment is the Son of Man coming on clouds, but he's not coming to bless. He's not coming to save. He's coming to judge. So you can imagine that talking about a Jesus Christ who's coming with a sharp sickle to judge and ending in the wine press of God's wrath isn't like happy preaching that you often hear, but it's God's word. And so if God says we need to hear it, It'll be real good for us. So now we're reading, and hopefully I've given you that framework. Let's read from Revelation 14, 1 through 20. This is pretty fast-moving, sharp narrative, so pay attention. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures, before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who are not defiled with women. They are virgins. They're the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These are the redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit. They were without fault before the throne of God. And now we're going to see those three angels that come in the morning. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell upon the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of water. Now you have another angel, verse 8, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Verse 9 is the third angel. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he shall himself also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and forever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, in contrast, the saints, verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandment of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. 
Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the white cloud, on the cloud, sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle, and another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which was in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And then another angel came out of the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him, who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs, four feet deep, 185-mile-long river of blood. This is the end of our reading in chapter 14. What are we to make of all of this? Well, let's go through it a chunk at a time. But, but as we do that, let's think this. This scripture is teaching us something that's very clear. In our day and age, things get foggy. People don't know who's who, the good guys from the bad guys. But because we have a Bible, we know this, and it's very precise, and it's very clear, and it's this. Those who worship the beast will suffer forever, and they will suffer the wrath of God. And those who worship the lamb will live forever, live forever in bliss in the presence of the lamb of God. God. The God of the Bible is the judge of the universe. The God of the Bible is the judge of the universe. Let's now, let's look at some, this 144,000, the lamb and the 144,000. I want to show you six things about them. I looked and behold the lamb standing on the Mount Zion with 144,000. And notice these things, they had their father's name written on their foreheads. They were identified with God, sealed with the name of God. That's in verse one. We're going to come back to verses two and three in a minute. But look at verse four. These are the ones who are not defiled by women. First thing about them is they, had, they, were, they were openly identified with God. Second, they were morally pure. They were sound. They were morally pure, just to clarify that. Uh, they were virgins. In this particular case, they had devoted themselves to God in a special way, but the, the, the essence here is that they were morally pure. The third thing is that there in verse 4, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have a loyalty and a fidelity to the lamb. Whatever he does, they want to do. Wherever he goes, they want to go. They have this loyalty. Now, the fourth thing is they're called redeemed. This is in verse 4. They're called redeemed from among men and the first fruits to God. The first fruits is the idea of the first of the harvest is the best of the harvest. So it talks kind of about their, their moral qualities. But it's also the beginning of a greater harvest, meaning there's going to be more later. So what the Bible teaches is this. Right now, the Jewish people have regathered in the land, but they've regathered in unbelief. There's going to come a time when God begins to gather the Jewish people in belief in the land, and this is taught clearly in Romans 9 through 11, that Jewish people in large numbers are going to come to Messiah. And these 144,000 are a part of that. The two witnesses, the 144,000 during the tribulation period, there's going to be a great soul harvest of Jews and Gentiles. And so the Jews are going to come back to God. And so that's why they're called the first fruits, because they're exemplary and because they're the first of many who are going to be coming back to God and who are going to be believing in Jesus. And then two more things about them. In their mouth was found no deceit, and they're without fault. Let's see if I can uh, show you all of these in one quick slide. And there you have it. 
in all one quick slide. I finally figured out how to use my new clicker there. That was my fault. So you have all these things. They have their father's name. They're morally pure. They follow the lamb. They're first fruits. Also there in, in verse 5 you see, and their mouth was found no deceit. They were without fault before the throne of God. They're honest. They're straightforward. They're primarily evangelists. They're tr- primarily evangelist teachers. And you can count on what they say. They're not lying. They're not motivated by selfish gain. They're without guile. They're without deceit. And the Bible says they are blameless. This doesn't mean that they're sinlessly perfect, but it means that they're qualified by lives that are consistent. Now, when you look at this, you want to think just for a minute. Okay, you have 144,000 people that had the seal of God during this dark time, and they were preserved by God with all of these qualities of character, and they were powerfully used by God during this time. Shouldn't that just be a great encouragement to us? Sometimes we think about the dark time in which we live, the demonic, filthy, just terrible time in which we live. And we think, well, nowadays it's just going to be impossible or almost, it's just so unlikely, so almost, almost impossible to live for the Lord. Like, do you think it's worse now than it's going to be in the tribulation? God is able to preserve a faithfulness, a purity, a fidelity. It's possible to live for God. He will seal us with his Holy Spirit. He will empower us to live for him. And so when you take your Bible, just you're a common Christian, and you take your Bible, and you lead your family, and you're, you're a dad with a Bible in his hand, you're a husband with a Bible in his hand, you're a, you're, a, you're a mom with a Bible, you're a kid with a Bible, and you have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you know the Lord, and you love the Lord, then what happens is you have what you need in order to go through the darkest time and still have an exemplary testimony. There's something that I, that I left out so we could go back to it. Take a look there in chapter 14 and verses 2 and 3. It says, I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, the voice of loud thunder, like the sound of harps playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the living creatures, the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 that were redeemed from the earth. This is really common. When you have a picture of earth in Revelation, it's chaos, it's horrifying, it's frightening. When you have a picture of heaven, it's orderly, and people are singing and honoring God before the throne. And here you have them singing a new song, and and there are three things it's described like. It's described like the voice of many waters, or like a huge wave or ocean, or, or, or like a beautiful waterfall. When we visited the Pacific Northwest, we went to Washington State, and we saw Multnomah Falls. It's not as big as Taquanaman Falls, but it's higher, it's beautiful, and it's just stunning to see it. Just a stunning thing to see. And when you stand back from the falls, it's so, so high and so beautiful. And when you walk up and you get almost under the falls, it, you can't hear people talking. John is saying, there's this ominous voice in heaven. And you hear this all the time, a voice coming from heaven. And John is saying, it's the song of the redeemed, and there you have those characters in heaven, you know, the four and 20 elders and the four living creatures and the 144,000 now joining, I believe, in the millennial song, and it's like a voice of many waters. It's a beauty, it's, a, it's almost like John can't humanly and adequately describe the sound of it. It's going to be an amazing, stunning thing. He says that it's the voice of many waters. He says it's like the voice of loud thunder. You ever been totally shocked? by thunder like in the night that you didn't expect. He said, it's kind of like a waterfall and like thunder or like I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. You don't want to think of one little kind of squirrely guy that couldn't make the football team, you know, kind of plucking at his harp. Don't, don't think about it like that. We're talking here, the, the, the vision that he's trying to give is a vision of an amazing symphony of music and this tremendous, can you imagine a hundred and four, how many did we have in the choir this morning? 25, 30, 
Am I there? Something like that. And that was so beautiful. Singing Hosanna. It was a good song today. It was a good song. Can you imagine 144,000 redeemed men in a male chorus of 144,000 men who had the song of redemption that was divine, that was given especially to them, and they're kind of getting backed up by the harps or however that works, and the instruments of heaven. Can you imagine the thrilling experience that it's going to be? Nobody's going to doubt the majesty, the glory, the wonder, the beauty of our God at that time. This is the picture that you have. This is the picture that God, Jesus gives, that God gives to John to deliver to the churches who just heard about the devil and the beast and the false prophet. This is the picture that goes to the churches that are sitting there and they're thinking maybe they're going to get crushed by that first century persecution that they were in. This is the picture that's given to us when we're in a dark time and we wonder if we and if our kids can make it in serving the Lord. We can. Let's look at the next section here. You see three angels of warning here in verses 6 through 12. Three angels of warning. 6. I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Notice what his warning is. He's going to preach the everlasting gospel. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ that that, le- that, that leads to everlasting life. And he's going to preach this to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people with a loud voice. And he's going to say the application of it is three things. Fear God, give him glory, and worship him. And why does he say? Because the hour of judgment is here. This is really important. When we preach the gospel, we always say, here's the gospel for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Anybody on earth, anywhere can receive the gospel and have everlasting life if they believe in Jesus. And we say, and we don't know when he's going to come back. And we don't know when your heart's going to stop beating. And we don't know when you're going to get hit by a car. But we just know that, that, but this is not now. This warning angel is coming and saying, now is the time of God's judgment. This is like the last call is what he's saying. It's incredibly important. There's another angel, the second warning angel, and you see that, uh, the second one there um, in, in verse 8. Oh, and by the way, um, uh, notice the last phrase in verse 7, that worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So kind of keep this in mind. In Revelation, early on, when they praise God, what do they praise him for? They praise him because he made everything. And then they praise him because he was slain. And then they praise him because he judges. If you look through Revelation, you see that. Chorus is in heaven. They're singing in heaven. And they're praising him because he made everything. Say that with me. Young people, say that with me. Made everything. So, so I don't care what your teacher at school tells you about his theories and all of that fancy footwork that they're trying to do to explain away God so that they can uh, live the way they want to live. The Bible teaches that the God of the universe who's going to judge the universe who is the slain land of the universe, is the one who made the universe. And when, they, when the angel's flying, in the very last warning, he says, you know the one who made you is about to come back and judge you. Keep that in mind. It kind of keeps your life kind of straightened out, right? So that's that. The next angel is saying, don't invest in the world system. And he's talking about Babylon, and it's sh- that's short for the world system that's against God. We'll go into that in more detail later. But that's what verse 8 says. Another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen. It's fallen. That great city because she's made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Fornication in this sense is an idiom. It's a symbol for spiritual infidelity to God. In other words, the world system, and it's the world system to some degree that, you, that we're living in right now, is against God. It's against the judge of the universe. It's against the lamb slain. It's against the one who created everything. And everything about it is against that. And you, you can hear that. It's like a soundtrack in our culture against God. It's like an undertow in our culture. It's like a, a dangerous undertow pulling us away from God. 
And the angel is coming along and saying, don't get bought into that world system because one day it's going to fall. It's going to fall hard. And it's going to fall hard just before the judgment comes. Don't buy into that world system. And then there's this third angel of warning. And this angel of warning in verses 9 through 13 is worshiping. It's going to tell what happens to those who worship the beast and what happens to those who worship the lamb. And so you look at it there, it says in the first verse, in verse 9 of that section, the third angel followed them, saying in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, here's what's going to happen. If he takes the mark on his head. So you, you kind of have, you notice in the text, there's a mark on the heads of the 144,000. There's a, there is a, there, there's a seal, there's a mark on those who follow the Lord. And there's a mark on those who don't follow the Lord. So, so, so this is like super important because someday you are going to be on one side or the other. And approaching, whether you're on one side or the other, we live from now until then in a way that's appropriate to that. Telling you something that's the most practical thing I could possibly tell you today about how to live your life. The God of the Bible is the judge of the universe, and therefore you want to live like it. See? So look at, look at there. He's going to say, the people that worship the lamb are going to end poorly, <laughs> to say the least, right? And the ones that, the, excuse me, the ones that worship the beast, you know what I meant, right? Are going to end poorly, to say the least. And the ones that worship the lamb, let's look at that contrast right now. He says, those who drink of the, of, of the uh, this is verse 10, he himself will also drink of the wine. This is the one who uh, receives the mark on his forehead or hand. He himself will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He'll be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. The initial thing is in the presence of God, and then they go on without the presence of God forever. The Bible is really explicit and clear. Jesus taught that there is like eternal conscious torment in the future for those who don't receive the Lord. So, so think about this. I would suggest that what, that what I'm saying right now, try, to, try really hard to make yourself really listen with your deepest part of your heart. Because this isn't like a, an infomercial. This is, I'm not trying to sell you a vacuum cleaner right now. I'm talking about the ultimate thing of the entire universe. It's like this, I don't know what you're going through in your life. I don't know what good news or bad news you've heard this week. I don't know what your temptations are. I don't know what your life is like. I don't know what your hurts are. I know in a group this large, it's just an amazing bunch of stuff. This I can tell you, though, with certainty, there is a God. He's revealed to us in the Bible. He made everything. He died for those who would believe. And he's coming back to judge someday. And if you think like that, everything else in your life kind of starts to make sense. And all the decisions that you have to make in your life start to make sense. And all the things that break your heart, don't break your heart as bad. Because there is a God. And he's coming to judge those who have rejected him. And to reward with eternal felicity, eternal peace, eternal joy, eternal rest, all those who believe in him. Think about that. The devil doesn't want you to listen to what I'm saying right now. Think about that. The devil doesn't want you to think of the implications of what I'm telling you. Because if he can keep you off and you're all, you're all kind of like staying preoccupied with things that don't even matter in the end. But he's sending here in the end time, he'll be sending these three angels of warning. This is his character. He's coming in wrath to judge and to reward, but he's, but he's sending these warnings. And so he gives this warning. Look at verse 11. Sometimes when we study the doctrine of hell in the Bible, we really want to soften it in our personal, because we, because we have this mercy and because we ourselves, you know, we, we long for mercy. And so we kind of want to soften it. It sounds very hard and difficult. And so it's a temptation to soften it. 
But you cannot soften the doctrine of the wrath of God, and you cannot soften the teaching of the Bible on hell without distorting the Bible itself. And here's a good example. The Bible here is teaching that hell is going to go on forever. This is one of the examples of that. Just read it in verse 11. The smoke of their torments, notice backing up, he shall be tormented with fire brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. How long is that? They have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Lost people who reject Jesus Christ, they get many warnings and evangelists and all of that, but then when they reject the Lord and they go on willfully, they will suffer away from the presence of the Lord in eternal conscious torment forever. The Bible is clear about that. Jesus is clear about that. We're not happy about that. That's why we go invite people for Easter. That's why we tell our loved ones. That's why we pray and we love and we invite. That's why this church is named Evangel. That's why this is a missionary sending church. We look forward to a time when our church can send more missionaries and we can help the ministry we have more. And I will tell you exactly how to do that. And that is we go and we be missionaries and we reach people, God helping us. We pray and we ask God to help us reach people. We love people. We invite people. And when God sends more people, guess what they're going to do? They're going to be followers of the Lamb. We'll be able to bring more missionaries, give more money to the missionaries that we have, and see the gospel going around the world, even sending our own sons and daughters, even going ourselves. And then when that happens, you that are participating in that will have a deeper sense of fulfillment than anybody whose baseball team won the World Series. You'll have a deeper sense of fulfillment than anybody who has a lot fancier car with a lot fancier features than your car, right? This is how we have meaning and significance and eternal significance in life. We participate in the work of God. And this is what we call you to, to participate in the work of God. Not because it's good for them, because it glorifies God, because it's good for them, and it's incredibly satisfying to us. If you're a young person here, you're looking for something to do with your life that's going to make a difference, do whatever God gifted you to do for the glory of God and for the salvation of lost people. And when you do that, I guarantee you, there's going to be a deep sense of joy and purpose and meaning and happiness in your life. That's why we're doing what we're doing as a church, getting fired up to be a team together, being unified in prayer, raising people for Christ, because they need to know the Lord, because they're better if they know him, their lives are happier if they know him, their eternity is blissfully, wonderfully happy if they know him. But if not, they will never stop suffering. Notice what it says now about the saints in verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead. Now the thing just changed, didn't it? From a curse to a blessing. To the saints, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. That's weird, isn't it? You don't want to think, oh, he died. He's blessed now. Well, that's the way it's going to be. For saints in the tribulation that die, then they go into their rest and they go into their reward with God. So it is even with us now. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, they may rest from their labors. Did you get that? Earlier on it says they're going to be tormented and they will. How long is hell? Listen, how long is hell? According to the Bible, how long is hell? It's what it says, their rest, they'll get no rest day or night. What does that mean? It's warning us of the duration of hell. This is just a frightening thing. This should motivate us. This should change us. This should stir us. This should make us prayerful. This should make us passionate. This should make us effective in our work for Christ. That hell is forever and it's real. And yet the opposite is true. The rest for the believer is forever. Notice that? They rest from their labors and their works follow them. Then you get to verse 14. Notice there, 
in verses 14 through 20, you have these two harvests of judgment, but it's initiated by a description of one who is the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite name for himself. He called himself on earth the Son of Man. He wanted to, to, by doing that, he did a couple of things. He identified with us, with human beings, but he also pointed to himself clearly as the Messiah because everybody who knew their Bible would know that that came right out of Daniel chapter 7, and it's a description of the Messiah, the Son of Man. He's the one who comes in, in Daniel, in all the pictures of Daniel, and he conquers all the kingdoms of the earth in the end. The king that's going to be the king over all kings and presidents and wannabe presidents is going to be Jesus Christ the king. I'm not running for president, thanks be unto God, but I will tell you what I would do if I was, and I wouldn't, but if I did, I would tie myself to that king as closely as I could. I wouldn't have my own economic policies. I wouldn't have my own opinions. I wouldn't have my own ideas about poverty. I wouldn't have my own ideas about morality. I would just say, there is a king of the universe. Listen to me, folks, who's the ultimate king of the universe, and everybody that has any authority should connect themselves to that authority, and the way you do that is by looking at the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God of the universe. And the God of the universe, that's the God of the Bible, is the one who's coming to judge. In between, everybody should line their lives up by the God of the Bible and by the word of God. And when a person or a family or a church or a nation departs from God, there's going to be, they're going in the wrong direction, and there's going to be terrible consequences. That's called curses in the Bible. Those who follow them, that's called blessings. So you have these three angels now. But first you have, in verse 14, a picture of the Son of Man coming with a golden crown and something unusual that you haven't seen before. Now he's coming with an instrument of judgment, a sharp sickle. It's a sickle for harvest. And the harvest is, it's not a happy harvest. It's a heartbreaking harvest. It's a harvest of judgment. It's not a localized judgment. It's a judgment of the whole entire earth. And he has these angels. He comes with mighty angels, the Bible says, frequently. And he has these angels that are announcing this judgment. In verse 15, you have the first one there. And, uh, and, and, and this is a, a grain harvest. The angel comes out of the temple, says with a loud voice, who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap the time for you to reap. So the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Listen to what Jesus said back in Matthew 13 when he was telling stories one day. He was telling stories one day, and he, he warned people about what the end of the world was going to look like. He was talking about sowing and reaping and tares, weeds growing in a field. And then he says, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, those who practice lawlessness, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some of you aren't listening right now. You just don't care. I'm talking about heaven, hell. I'm talking about life and death. I'm talking about eternity, and you don't care. You, you came, but you, you don't really care that much. It's like, whatever. Tell me something I'm interested in. Others of you, you're frightened by this, and that's good. If you don't know the Lord, you should be frightened into receiving Christ, into yielding to Christ. Others of us really should be, in a sense, very comforted by this. Scriptures are really clear about that, that we should be comforted by it, because God says he's going to come and vindicate. He's going to take vengeance. He's going to vindicate his righteousness and his righteous ones. He's going to show who is, is, and that's that's a part of what he does. So there you have this this first harvest. It's a grain harvest. But you have a second harvest, and that is a grape harvest, verses 17 through 20. I really believe that 
verses 14 through 16 are talking about the seven bold judgments that we're going to describe later, and those are also described in Revelation 16. And then verses 17 through 20 is a description of what the Bible calls Armageddon, and it's also described in Revelation 19, this great, and we know that because when you get to the end and it talks about there's a correspondence between that last verse about this river of blood and what happens during Armageddon is a horrifying bloodbath when Jesus Christ comes back to execute his righteousness in his, his appearance in power and great glory to judge and to institute his kingdom. In verse 17, you have that second angel of the, uh, of the, of the angels that are announcing and executing the judgment of God. Both of these angels, the first two of these, came from the temple. It's what it says in verse 17. It's about all that it says. Another angel comes from the temple, which is in heaven. He has a sharp sickle. But then there's something different about the third angel. He comes from the altar. And what do we know about the altar? The last time that we saw the altar, over and over again, the altar was associated with what? If you remember this, it was associated with like a fire that's uh, symbolic of the prayers of the saints. And the prayers of the saints in Revelation, seem always to be associated with God sending his judgment on those that have oppressed the saints. You see that? So what's happened here is the saints, and the tribulation saints in particular, are crying out to God, God, when are you going to vindicate our suffering? When are you going to show that we were right and they were wrong? When are you going to make everything that's wrong right? When are you going to take care of those who abuse children and those who defied God and those who curse God and those who blaspheme God? He's going to take those prayers of those faithful Christians gathering those little prayer meetings everywhere where very few people attend, those little you know, house meetings where you have prayer and those dear elderly saints who can't do a thing more but they're praying. He's going to take the prayers of the saints and it's going to be like fire of judgment on the earth. That's what it's saying right here. And you cried with a loud to him who had the sharp sickle. He said, thrust in the sharp sickle, gather the clusters of the vine on the earth. Her grapes are fully ripe. And then you have this ominous, horrifying phrase. The angel thrust in his sickle to the earth, gathered the vine of the earth like grapes, right? Threw it in the great wine press of the wrath of God. This is the way God wants us to understand how it's all going to end. Now, you're going to work on Monday morning. You want to keep that in mind, right? This will help you on your road rage. Like, this isn't what it's all about, whether you're ahead or behind. It's like that person driving that car is either going to be in the eternal joy and bliss of heaven or going to get cast into the wine press of God's wrath someday. Your children, your family members, your loved ones, they live eternally with God or they're cast into the wine press of God's wrath. That's what the Bible says. You can't explain this away. And the wine press was trampled outside the city. The blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles. And this is like four feet deep, the horses' bridles, 100, 185, 200 miles long. This is a picture of Armageddon at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes and single-handedly defeats all of his foes. And there's this great, horrifying pouring out of judgment. Think about this now, just for a minute. Notice this. The mercy of God is sweet it's undeserved, it's eternal. But the judgment of God, it's swift, it's fierce, and it's final. I'll put this on a slide so it will be burned into your mind. Today our world judges God. Today our world judges his word. You go anywhere and you got people judging God. You got people judging God's word. Sitting in judgment on God, are you paying attention? Sitting in judgment on God and his word, can you imagine that? Who is God? He's the judge of the universe. He's the king of the universe. You say, I don't like the way you said that. Well, if somebody was warning me about certain death, I wouldn't care if they yelled. I would just say, well, by all means, warn me. Warn my wife. Warn my kids. You know, at least you heard it today. 
The Bible teaches that even though our world is sitting in judgment on our God and on judgment on God's word, that one day God from his word will judge all of the, of the earth. And if you uh, take your Bibles and you look there in 2 Thessalonians, I want you to notice something, chapter 2 and verse 8, or you can just listen. Uh, he's going to judge the, 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 uh, the Antichrist. Chapter 2 and verse 8 says, The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. This is the language of the Bible. It's very frightening. It's very ominous. It's not a little happy, like, nursery rhyme Jesus that's like, you know, just like stroking a little sheepy on the head. We're talking about the king of the universe who has the right to reign and rule and he has justified justice and wrath and he's been waiting and patient and warned in so many ways and when he comes, this is the way it's going to look. He will be revealed and the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy the bright, with the brightness of his coming. Turn back if you're opening your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and in one of the letters of Paul, here's how he describes it. He says to the Thessalonians, we were boasting about you. You know, you're a good church among the churches of God. For your patience of faith, two times in Revelation 12, once in Revelation 12, I'm sorry, once in Revelation 13, and once in today's text in Revelation 14, it uses the phrase, the perseverance of the saints. We're saved by grace through faith alone. It's a gift of God, not of works, but it's only real if we're the ones who persevere faithfully to the end. Does that make sense? These are persevering faithfully to the end. It shows that they're real. It's not just that they went to church, their parents drug them to church, and they can answer the questions on a little, you know, kind of cheap knockoff Baptist catechism, but they're people who really had the life of God in them, who really had the love of God beating in their chest, who really were willing to die for him. Okay, so now you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, and Paul, one of the apostles, is writing to a church of faithful Christians. And here's how he describes it. For your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Do you see that? Verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In flaming fire, with all his mighty angels, he's going to come, take vengeance on those who don't know God. That's not like something I made up. That's the Bible. And, it's, and I've showed you through different passages of the Bible, it's not one passage that's taken out of context, right? It's just the teaching of the Bible. Jesus is going to come. He's the one who made the universe He's the one who wrote the Bible. He's going to come in judgment one day. He's going to reward those who are his. He's going to punish those who are not his. So you should live like it, right? You should live like it. Let me just make some suggestions here uh, to you. Um, because I say suggestions because there are many different ways that you can apply these truths. But I want to suggest you as a pastor, hey, matter of fact, this is a biblical command. Worship the lamb. You don't need to fear the beast if you worship the lamb. In, 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 uh, this is fulfillment of... Uh, Psalm 2, where it specifically says, remember, maybe in your King James Bible, it says, kiss the son. And it seems confusing. It's like, the idea is like kissing the ring of a king. Do homage. He's the king. So is that the attitude that you have toward God? He's the absolute king of your life. So I just want to suggest, since the God of the Bible 
is the judge of the universe, I would suggest that you get on your knees as fast as you can and you make him the king of your life and everything in your life and then your life now is going to match with your life later. That's what I'm saying, right? And whatever you do, whatever that means for you and whoever you are. And the second thing there is like be sure you have persevering faith. I already mentioned this. And then third, live a credible life because you need to warn and rescue other people. And for those of you who are believers, this might be the main thing to take home today. And that is, like the 144,000 effective witnesses, would I be able to count? You're like one of those effective witnesses? I don't want to embarrass anybody today, but I remember when I came to this church eight and a half years ago, in my ninth year, eight and a half years ago, they were kind of showing me around the church, and they were showing me how beautiful the church was and, and, and t- talking to me about the people. And the, so the leaders of the church, the public committee, were, were bragging on you guys. And they were saying, you know, here's our building and here's our people, and, and this is what the, some of the things that we do. And, and I, you know, I was, I was just, just thrilled to be, you know, like interviewed, thrilled to get a chance to do that. And, and, I, and I, I mentioned this before, and, and it's just what came to my heart over and over again to tell you again today. But one of the men of the church kept talking about one of the young men in the church. He kept telling about a young man that went to Romulus High School and played football at Romulus High School, and he witnessed at Romulus High School, and he brought friends to the church. He started things and kind of did, and he brought, brought his friends that didn't know the Lord to the church. This man was telling me, you want to pastor this church because we have a nice building, because we have good people, but because we have young people who are pure, witnessing, following the Lord, serious about the Lord. So could we like make you an example of the believers? Can we take you and say, watch, look at this guy. Look at this gal. She loves the Lord. She's walking in purity and honesty and faithfulness before the Lord. She's a, he or she has gotten help from the Lord to be what they ought to be. I would say live a credible life so that you can warn and rescue others. Today our world judges God and his word. But in the end it will be clear that the God of the Bible, he's the judge of the universe. And if you think about that, it's going to help you this week. Like we usually do, we're going to close in a song. And that kid that we were talking about, who's thoroughly embarrassed right now, is going to come and pray. And um, I know he's, he's a dad now. He's a husband now. One of our men. He's going to come and pray. And I've, I've embarrassed him, put a lot of pressure on him now. So <laughs> you, you want to pray for him, but you pray for you. Because all of us, we want to persevere faithful, follow the Lord. Now listen to me, just, just one more thing. We're, we're, we're about done. We're going to sing. And Joe Kisnowski is going to come and he's going to pray. He's going to say a word. He's going to pray. Listen to me real carefully right now. If you're here today, though, and you're not sure what's going to happen in the end for you, like you just aren't really sure you're a Christian, you can be, a, you can be saved today. And so the other pastor is going to go to the doors and I'm going to stay right here. And uh, if you come forward, what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll take some time and we'll explain to you how you can know for sure that you're right with God and how you can know for sure that you have a place in heaven. You can know for sure that you'll never be tossed into the wine press of God's wrath. Listen, I'll be waiting right here. And if you don't know the Lord for sure, we'll start that conversation. If you're a lady and it'll be uncomfortable for you to talk to me, we'll, we'll, we'll connect you with another lady and help you. If you have another need, spiritual need, you want to maybe set up an appointment, you want to join the church, you want to get baptized, you come and see me. After we sing this song, Joe's going to come and pray. And then we'll dismiss the service and I'll come here and you can come and meet with me.